0: Today, I had the opportunity to connect with Dr. Lat Mansoor. He's the research lead of HVMN and oversees all of their research efforts and collaborations with universities and research institutions. He has a PhD from Oxford University, as well as a master's in sarcopenia, and his background is predominantly in metabolism and physiology. We discussed the role of ketones, how ketones are the fourth macronutrient, the role of energy and ATP how CGMs and glucometers can help empower and motivate patients defining endogenous versus exogenous ketones and how we can utilize these in our day-to-day lives the role of how ketones can improve cognition as well as performance what is actually behind keto flu the role of fatty coffees as well as ongoing research that HVMN is doing this is our first of second uh, this is our first of two interviews and i know that you will enjoy Dr. Mansoor. He is absolutely delightful and really makes the science and physiology accessible for all. I am delighted today to be joined by Dr. Lat Mansoor. And we, you know, originally kind of connected out of an interest of learning about exogenous ketones. But when I dove into your background, it was like a plethora of really relevant topics for my listeners, things I talk about all the time. You know, you have a PhD in physiology and you have a master's in sarcopenia, which is one of my favorite, not my favorite words per se, but it's a really important topic for people that are north of 35 to understand so that we can work against this. So let's start with your background, which I think is really fascinating and enlightening. And I know that even when we were talking before recording, what you were sharing are there so many good nuggets there that will be relevant to the listeners?
1: Thank you so much, Cynthia. I'm honoured to be here talking to you and on your podcast. So I was born and bred in Malaysia. Um, so until I was 20 years old, finished my A levels, I moved to the UK, did my undergrad in biotechnology in University of Nottingham, and then straight after, I thought to myself, well having a science degree, because I want to go into science, having just a science degree may not be enough. So let's go further. I want to do a postgrad, but I wasn't sure if I was ready for a PhD. So I applied for a master's in New York City. And I got into Columbia University doing biotechnology as well, with a lot of focus around drug development and regulation. Psychopenia was the topic of my master's thesis. And right after that, I was like, all right, I've got enough degrees now. I've got to go start working and money. And I joined a pharmaceutical company, the medicines company in New Jersey for half a year before they turned me full-time. And then I moved to Munich for working for the Munich office. And during that year and a half, I worked for them full-time. I was really inspired by the people there. They were PhD holders who are very eloquent in what they say, what they talk about, what they are passionate about but at the same time they're also very entrepreneurial so that inspired me to apply for a phd at oxford university in the uk because one of the main reason is also because in the uk it's 3 years to get a phd versus 5 to 6 years in the us wow so i knew i wanted to get it done and go back out and you know start making an impact in people's lives so i got accepted december 2010 and i started 2011 at the university of oxford in a detail in physiology anatomy and genetics my thesis was on metabolism of type 2 diabetic heart in hypoxia so i looked at different forms of hypoxia both acute and chronic hypoxia and i used a type 2 diabetic model a rat model to basically investigate what metabolic flexibility is how does that affect diabetic hearts and how can we possibly reverse or rectify that inflexibility to make sure that diabetic hearts do not get an increased risk of heart failure after they come through myocardial infarction or ischemia or hypoxia. And then I joined a diabetes management program company in Singapore after my graduation, ran the business development for a year and a half, and then started my own health tech company in Malaysia for a year and a half before HVMN found me they needed a physiology sort of expert and run their military program. So now I'm the principal investigator for a $6 million military STTR grant, looking at cognitive and physical performance using exogenous ketones, especially in hypoxia.
0: I think it's all fascinating. And I don't know if you know this about me, but my whole background as a nurse practitioner was working in cardiology. And so part of my endeavor and my focus of my work is you know, ensuring that people understand the role of metabolic flexibility, why it's so important, because I saw the byproduct of what happened. And one of the reasons why I left clinical medicine was that our current model is so broken that we aren't equipping our patients with the strategies that really are the lifestyle piece that are so integrated and so important in this work. So, to back up a little bit, for purposes of our discussion. And because I talk a lot about let's back up to when you did your masters and then I want to weave in when you were doing your doctoral uh, work. So you were at Columbia and you were, you know, you did your thesis in sarcopenia. So let's talk about the relevance of sarcopenia, this muscle loss with aging to how it impacts metabolic flexibility, because all these pieces come together so beautifully. I talk a lot about sarcopenia, but it's really wonderful to have the opportunity to connect with a scientist so they can give their perspective about sarcopenia and why it's so significant.
1: So I think I'm going to start with, you know, why it's important, especially in elderly population. So I remember writing that thesis. I didn't realize that one of the highest cause of mortality is fall in elderly population. And one of the main reasons of them falling and you know, puncturing organs or breaking bones or internal bleeding that leads to death is because of the lack of support of the muscle for their movement, for their mobility. And that was how I was like, okay, sarcopenia. And I then research what can we do then to make sure that we don't get there, right? So what I found is that, you know, 30 years and above, if we don't do any resistance exercise, our muscles start to atrophy, And because of that, I was like, okay, so let's all do resistance exercise, but it's not just as simple as that, because as we age, we also accumulate oxidative damage. So then we can't just do resistance exercise without the endurance exercise. So aerobic exercises is as important as resistance exercise when it comes to aging. And what really fascinated me was that when I looked at studies of 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, who has gone to rehab and gone through resistance exercise, they saw increase in muscle mass, significant increase in muscle mass. And the fact that our body at that age can respond so effectively with resistance exercise shows us that there's no reason for us not to do it. And then it comes to the metabolic flexibility part of things where we have increased muscle mass and therefore increasing our basal metabolic rate. So that's a whole different issue about insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, weight loss, keeping that healthy weight through our aging process, as well as the ability to switch substrates because your body is so energy efficient that you can use any substrates that you give your body, the fats, the proteins, the glucose, the ketones, which is what we're doing in HVMN.
0: I think it's really important. You know, one of the things that really struck me, and obviously when I was a nurse practitioner, I started in my twenties and because I was working with such a, you know, I kind of diverse process. So cardiovascular disease impacts people at nearly every age group. And 20 years ago, things were, people were a little bit healthier than they are today. Things have, we've continued to trend in a direction where there's a lack of metabolic flexibility, rampant obesity, et cetera. And so for me, I just recall the impression someone made on me. It was a 50 year old patient who had a bedside commode. They were in a step-down unit. They are you know, had had a myocardial infarction, so heart attack. And it was really interesting to me that this patient could not get out of bed and get to the toilet and go to the bathroom and get back in bed. They had not enough strength to be able to, with their quadricep muscles, they had so much muscle atrophy that they were unable to get from the bed to the commode, which is pretty significant. And in a 50 year old, you wouldn't expect to see that. And I recall, you know, one of the cardiologists I was working with, he and I were talking about this and he was talking about how significant this was. And so that was probably the first time that I started to think about this interrelationship of, you know, strength in muscles Being a, you know, if you have a lack of strength in muscle, it's a poor prognostic indicator. And you're right to your point. You know, we know that if a patient falls and breaks a hip, there's significant morbidity and mortality associated with that. So it's not as benign as, as we'd like to think it is for a lot of different reasons. And beyond the scope of our conversation, but you, you know, you touched on the ketones piece. And so when we're talking about metabolic flexibility, let's start from the perspective of defining what are ketones, because I think there's a lot of misinformation that's out there. I love that you use the terminology fuel substrate because I use that too. Don't be worried. We're talking about macros and nutrients, but I even heard you in a podcast talking about ketones as another type of macronutrient, the fourth macronutrient So let's start the conversation there because this is really interesting, and I don't want anyone to feel like we're going to be too sciencey. We're going to be defining terms, and we're going to be weaving through relevancy so that it'll be an accessible conversation for everyone.
1: Thank you, thank you very much for bringing that up, Cynthia. Because I do think there is a lot of misinformation out there, and even just normal emails. Or I was at Metabolic Health Summit two weeks ago presenting our work with the military and. Granted, the audience there, they were, you know, very well-versed and very knowledgeable around ketones. But I can imagine, you know, at another conference, say weight loss conference or a national strength and conditioning, where people are more focused on other areas. They may not know what ketones are and they would just go straight into ketogenic diet, given that ketogenic diet is way more prevalent in the past decade or so. So ketones are essentially a molecule that our body creates in the state of low glucose and low glycogen stores. So when you're fasting, when you are on ketogenic diet, which means you're restricting your carbs intake uh, to a very low amount, then your body starts breaking down fat and turning it into uh, ketones in your liver. And then it will get transported around the body and functions the same way as fats or glucose in the sense that it goes into the mitochondria, the Powerhouse of the cell to create energy, and that is why we say it's a fourth micronutrient, Even though it goes, it shares the similar pathway as fatty acid oxidation. If you take exogenous ketones, it goes straight and into the acetyl CoA goes into the Krebs cycle and then oxidative phosphorylation. So, in that sense, we can argue that did not come directly from your fats. A complete different molecule than glucose and fat. It has its own calories. We found that that each gram has about six calories. And so that's what ketones are. And then there is exogenous ketones and endogenous ketones. So what I explained earlier, it's more around the endogenous ketone where your body creates itself, so inside. And exogenous ketone has only been around in the past two decades or so, where research start to look at the benefits of ketogenic diet, for example, in seizures. And how can we then combat that adherence issues where people don't want to be on a ketogenic diet? People don't feel good in a ketogenic diet. People don't want that increase in lipids or fats in their body, LDL and all the other cholesterol. So then exogenous ketones come in where you can directly drink or eat a ketone product and it increases your blood ketone levels. Granted, that is temporary. So that's exogenous ketone, where externally you consume ketones. It's temporary. It will last a few hours and it will go back down. But nonetheless, studies have shown that you will get that benefit, uh, depending on what benefit, either performance or cognitive or brain network stabilization. A lot of studies have shown that acute phase of benefits, even with one dose. So, which is great because... Then you're thinking, okay, you don't need that sort of adaptation process in order to get the benefit. You can get it straight away and you don't need to get on a strict diet.
0: Well, and what is it that you think has occurred with our modern day lifestyle that has made it harder for people to make endogenous? So making ketones within our own bodies, what has made that so challenging?
1: Great question. Now, insulin is anti-ketogenesis. So ketogenesis, let's talk about the word ketogenesis. Ketogenesis means the process of making ketones in your liver by converting your fats into ketones. And the presence of insulin actually inhibits that because it's telling your body, hey, look, you've got glucose in your body. You've got all these other substrates that you can use for faster energy. Don't burden your body to create these ketones. So with our current standard American diet, standard Western diet, where it's so high in carbohydrates... We have a constant elevation of, of insulin. And a lot of like research also shown, you know, that's a whole different conversation around consistent elevation of insulin causing, you know, inflammation and could be the thing that causes insulin resistance and diabetes and all that and chronic diseases. So because of our current lifestyle, all the majority of the developed world are having it basically prohibits ketogenesis. And that is exactly why, and that is why you need to either go on intermittent fasting or restrict your carbs severely, like in a ketogenic diet, in order to create your own ketones.
0: I think this is a really important distinction to make that it's our modern day lifestyles that are impeding our body's ability to make a fuel substrate that it should be able to make on its own naturally, because we overeat the wrong types of foods, i.e., carbohydrates and we are eating too often. So we have this state of chronically elevated insulin, which does not allow our bodies to be able to go in and use this alternative pathway or even break down fatty acids to be able to use as a fuel substrate. So if people are listening and they're trying to figure out, does this mean you have to eat a ketogenic diet? No, it does not, but it does mean that you need to eat less frequently. If you want to make your own endogenous ketones, And you need to make better food choices by, you know, if you're going to have carbohydrates, get them from real whole food sources and not processed foods. So what I think is really interesting is that when our body is able to make ketones or we're consuming exogenous ketones, we tend to be less hungry. I think this is what goes contrary to everything. I used to tell my patients eat frequently to stoke your metabolism. You know, you shouldn't be getting hungry. Well, we know that by utilizing this more efficient fuel substrate that we will be less hungry. Can we talk about that?
1: Sure. I think so far there is one study that showed exogenous ketones using ketone ester actually suppresses ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. So that is has already been proven, but we are actually in the process of doing a collaboration with a university to run a study on our own product ketone iq in appetite suppression so i can't wait to see the results on that because we'll be measuring ghrelin we'll be measuring leptin we'll be measuring calories as well on top of just the hormone regulation we want to see if it actually translates right away as to how much they eat some of the studies that has been sort of ongoing at the moment not published yet they showed that you feel satiated but it didn't reflect in the calorie intake in the sense that they just ate less calories, which is equivalent to the calorie that of ketones that they took, which is quite interesting. So they just replace, you know, instinctively. is like, oh, I've got, say, 120 calories from ketones. I just feel more full before I reach that 120 calories after I have the full meal. So a lot more to, to unpack there, a lot more to investigate there. But I think what was very important, what you said earlier as well about, you know does that mean everyone needs to go on low carb does that mean everyone needs to go on ketogenic diet i don't think so as well and when i was working for the diabetes management program company what i noticed is that people most of the time they know what to eat they are eating the right things but they're eating at the wrong proportion and they're eating way more frequent than way more frequently than they should and i think that was what people need in terms of guidance and advice and information from people like yourself and people like you know, dietitians, nutritionists, and you know, a lot of companies are doing that, you know, diabetes prevention programs. And I think that is what people need because people know they're okay, they need the veg, they need the fruits, their grains or uh, their proteins, their fats, but it's just over time, especially when you're cooking for families, it's not really regulated per se. So it's at libitum and which is, you know, you just eat however much you want until you feel full. So.
0: I think that's important because when I'm working with women, a lot of what I talk about is hitting their protein macros because it is so satiating. And if oh. most of us are eating a standard American diet or a Western diet, we're likely eating too many carbohydrates, too little protein the wrong types of fats, like seed oils that I talk a lot about. And so I think that with the understanding that you may have to do a little bit of tinkering, what are your thoughts about the use of glucometers and CGMs to help with people determining like where their threshold needs to be? Cause we mentioned, and I think this does happen frequently, people aren't really mindful of portions and that does add up. And maybe they're having like one big meal a day, and then they're not hungry for more meal, but they're chronically under eating protein, and this is important for prevention of sarcopenia.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point because when I was doing my PhD, you know, yes, I was investigating metabolic inflexibility in diabetes and how can I possibly come up with some insight to make an impact in the diabetic population. But then later on, I realized, okay, we can have all the intervention we can, we have, but what about the tracking? Because diabetes is one of the chronic diseases where it develops 15 years in the making before you, get, you even get diagnosed being a diabetic. So it's also really important for us to track what is impacting our lifestyle that is contributing to the disease progression, but also how effective a, an intervention is. So that's why when you mentioned CGM, I think that's great for people, especially people who are not that in tune with their bodies yet. They don't, because sometimes you can feel that you're not eating right. You're not sleeping right. You're not having the right lifestyle when you feel fatigued, when you, you know, you just feel sluggish and bloated. So you know that, but then having CGM, it puts everything objectively with numbers. And now you can say definitively certain types of food, certain types of lifestyle does not suit you or it's not good for your body.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's important for people to understand that with this muscle loss, with this sarcopenia, with aging in general, especially for women, as they're losing estradiol signaling, which we know is an insulin sensitizing hormone, those combinations of factors will impact your ability to what your carbohydrate threshold is. So if you're still lifting weights and you're mid to late forties, you are going to be more metabolically flexible than someone who has, is effectively not exercising has a, you know, very heavy carbohydrate diet and is in a position where they're making it much harder for their body to be more metabolically attuned, flexible, et cetera. And I think it's important for people to understand, like throughout most of my podcasts, I have some reoccurring themes and knowing your numbers, I would say get empowered, like don't feel overwhelmed with the information. But I think having a continuous glucose monitor, even for a month of your life is very enlightening. And this even happens for me. I'm very metabolically flexible, but there are certain types of carbs that don't agree with my body and that's okay, but I know how to navigate around that. So I think it's an important distinction. I'm glad that you are also supportive of this.
1: I was going to add to that, like be empowered by that information because it's your body's data. So you are fully owning that data, but also that gives you motivation to things that you change in your lifestyle that affects those numbers. Like that gives you power because it just shows that you are actually in control, you know what I mean? Like you make your choices and then you see the results. It's amazing how that transformation I see in most people, especially pre-diabetics, when they realize, you know, their glucose levels start going down when they make those changes, you know, three months in or like early diabetic patients got off metformin, got off medication. They're like, wow, this is actually possible so having that data is so empowering and that that just you know cultivate sort of positive feedback loop and you just keep going
0: well and i think it's really encouraging for people to feel like they're in control of something you know the traditional Absolutely. allopathic model here in the states the traditional old model was that the patient showed up to the doctor's office or provider's office and whatever they were told is what they did. And I think now there's, right now I think of it more as a collaborative relationship. We both bring something to the table. We talk about things. I think that many people are now more aware that there are lots of ways to track information, whether it's a glucometer, a continuous glucose monitor, whether you're you know, wearing an aura ring, which I talk about a lot. I love it. It's probably my favorite thing that I use to kind of track information, but there's so many you know, other things that are out there that people can do. So acknowledging the importance of people feeling empowered and inspired to continue making better choices is significant. And I can imagine for you having with your background in type two diabetes, which is a lifestyle disease, it's probably very gratifying for you to be able to you know work within a company and an organization where well, you're really making a big impact. So let's talk a little bit about we were talking about endogenous versus exogenous ketones and talk to us about how the HVMN product the Ketone IQ how is this different from other types of exogenous ketones that are available.
1: Sure. Um so HVMN, I work for Company Health Bio uh, Modern Nutrition. We have this product called Ketone IQ, where in it, it's R13-butanediol is the active ingredient. So essentially, it goes into your liver, it gets converted into beta-hydroxybutyrate. The three main ketone bodies in your body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the primary one that is used for energy, we've got acetoacetate, and then we've got acetone, which is usually this byproduct that gets released through respiration. Now, how is it different from other exogenous ketones? So right now, because people are realizing the benefit of ketones, there are a lot of exogenous ketones out there. And I think it started probably with ketone salts because companies like Pruvit, they're very big. And the problem with salt is that one, it doesn't increase your blood BHB or blood beta-hydroxybutyrate to a level high enough to get uh, certain benefits, like performance you need quite high. And other benefits you need, maybe above one millimolar versus two. And on top of that, because of the salt load, a lot of cardiovascular researchers, they can't use that because it increases risk for hypertension patients and increased heart complications. So that's ketone salt. And then there are ketone esters. So ketone esters have been shown to increase blood BHB to a quite high level, now, the difference between ketone ester and ketone IQ is that we are basically half of ketone ester. Ketone ester is an esterified form of BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate, esterified with diol. So ours is just a butanediol. So we found that to be more cost-effective, to be similar in terms of efficiency, but most importantly, the taste. So we've done some research around taste of ketone ester and a lot of people do know how bad it tastes and how bitter it tastes and i actually presented our flavor um, research work at metabolic health summit and people were cackling about how it doesn't only because we use different sweeteners different maskers to suppress the bitterness it didn't work and not only that it actually suppresses the sweetness of the sweeteners and we use brown like seven times sucrose of a can of Coke and four times sucralose of diet Coke. So like that is a high amount of, of sweeteners we put in there, but it literally suppresses the sweet taste and the bitterness just stays on. So that was ketone ester. And I think there are other ketone esters as well, like C6 bound with butane diol. So it's a diester. So two C6 fatty acid molecules Bound with butane diol. That's also another product on the market. And I think there are miscellaneous products as well that adds free acid, free BHB, beta-hydroxybutyric acid with butane diol just straight up without binding them via the acerification process. That's a mouthful word.
0: Yes, it is. And it's really interesting. So two years ago, I was supposed to do travel to Asia, and a friend convinced me I needed ketone esters and Then the pandemic happened. So I never made this trip to Asia. And uh, I had bought ketone esters. And, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, I was like, I I should probably taste these. (laughs) When you mentioned their bit, I mean, they have a very bitter, almost to the point where it's unpalatable. So I kept thinking, my friend who's been using these regularly, I'm like, do you hold your nose? I mean, how do you manage to get these down? So I'm glad to know that HVM has been doing a lot of research to try to counteract some of this. So one very important ketone body that you mentioned is beta hydroxybutyrate and i talk a lot about this about how it diffuses the blood brain barrier so let's talk about some of the cognitive benefits of bhb and i know that your product breaks down into bhb and so this is oftentimes the the crux when i'm trying to get people to fast i always say it improves cognition and energy and really it's a byproduct of this amazing ketone
1: Yeah. So BHB, you know, we have been talking about ketones for the first half of the podcast. So whenever we mention ketone, most of the time, about 99% of the time we are referring to beta-hydroxybutyrate, because like I said, that is the primary form that is in our body and getting metabolized and all those good benefits come from beta-hydroxybutyrate elevation in your blood. And as you said, Cynthia, it does bypass the uh, blood-brain barrier. And that is the benefit of it, because so far... The brain obviously can metabolize glucose, but not fat. So fats cannot bypass the barrier because of the large size of the molecule. Now, beta-hydroxybutyrate can, but because of our current modern lifestyle, we are suppressing ketogenesis. We are suppressing the production of ketones. Therefore, our brain only has glucose as the sole source of substrate or the sole source of energy. What happens if that's pathway gets impeded if you have insulin resistance if somehow your glucose transporters are impaired or if you are in a traumatic brain injury uh, situation or alzheimer's where they saw a dysfunction in glucose metabolism what then your brain is running out of energy and it will create a lot of damage you know from trying to balance that energy deficiency so that's where beta hydroxybutyrate comes in and fill in that gap to really compensate for the energy deficiency. So one study that looked at both ketogenic diet for a week versus a ketone ester administration for just one dose of 25 grams, and they looked at functional MRI, and they found that with the ketogenic diet and the exogenous ketones, both have the same result, as in they both increase brain network stability. Now, this is very important. as we age, they found that our brain networks of brain regions, the communication between them start destabilizing. And having the ketones in the body somehow increases that stabilization.
0: It's really interesting because I think that as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking about you know how to utilize the ketone iQ. And I've actually, I've enjoyed it. I've been using it before speaking events, and so I try to do them fasted anyway but anything that's going to turn up, you know, the signaling in my brain so that I'm feeling even sharper is certainly important. Are there people that should not use exogenous ketones? I don't know the answer to that question. I just, I thought I would ask you. Is there no- No, that's a good question. I mean,
1: there are, as we speak, I'm like, well to take a shot mm-hmm. of ketone IQ actually. <laughs> I think generally exogenous ketones are safe. So our product is FDA, grass generally recognized as safe, but we do see a trend of low glucose. Temporarily, as you drink the exogenous ketone, as you drink the ketone IQ. So I would say for people who have, you know, hypoglycemia, who have problems with lowered blood glucose, just on a daily basis, on a you know basal level, might want to be careful with that because sometimes, you know, it might lower your glucose to to a level that is too low. Even though yes, it does provide the energy, but it might also affect other metabolic pathways. So consult your doctor before drinking that if that is of a concern. Other than that, I don't think there is any strict no-no groups for taking exogenous ketones. Now, if you talk about different goals, that's a different conversation because we're now not talking about the side effects. We're now not talking about the, why should you not take it for health reasons? But now we're talking, okay, should you take this if you want to lose weight, for example? So what I say is like, oh, if people are already on ketogenic diet, they're already seeing results. This might complement their ketogenic diet in the sense that it puts them in deeper ketosis if that's what they want. But in terms of losing weight, as I said, we are still looking at studies of appetite suppression. But if they're already doing well on ketogenic diet, there's no reason for them to get this product. But then if, like you said, they want to get that cognitive benefit, that high ketone level just in the morning before they start their day, before they go on a podcast, then yeah, let's you know have, have a shot, have a serving of Ketone IQ and then go about your day. And then you can also fast. So that's also a very common question by our customers. Can I drink Ketone IQ if I am fasting? I use it to intermittent fast, actually. I use it in the night before and I don't have to eat until lunchtime, but my question to them is that what is the purpose of your fast? The purpose of your fast is say 16, eight, 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of feeding window. And you just want to restrict your calories. You just want to have that increased endogenous ketones. Then by all means, ketone IQ would definitely help and complement their lifestyle. But if your fasting goal is to create autophagy, now you have to be fasting for about 48 hours and above, and you can't take any calories in. So remember earlier on, on this podcast, I talked about ketones having calories. So ketones, one serving is around 70, 60, 70 calories that might impede your process of getting into autophagy. So think about, think more about, you know, what your goal is, what your lifestyle changes, what your interventions are, and then go from there rather than saying, okay, this product is magic. This product is good for everything and everyone, but Personalized to yourself,
0: I think that's an important distinction, and one that is you know will probably generate a lot of questions. I use this in a fasted state, but I recognize that if I'm doing a clean fast where I'm you know normally just doing water and green tea, et cetera, I'm doing it for a specific purpose. I want to make sure when I get up there and I'm speaking that I'm not you know having thankfully, it's never happened to me having a loss of words. But I really like to know that my brain is going to be in a in the most advantageous state while I'm speaking. I think that's super important. When I mentioned to my followers that we were going to connect, I got a lot of questions about keto flu, which we both know is when people are struggling to go from being predominantly using glucose as a substrate to trying to get to a point where their body can utilize fatty acids. And so let's talk a little bit about keto flu. And is this a product that someone could utilize to bridge that gap? I mean, I find for a lot of people, a lot of what keto flu is, is related to electrolyte depletion. And I always say, if you're fasting, you have to make sure you're replacing your electrolytes. It's kind of a standard methodology for me, but for people that are worried about maybe fasting or dipping their toe into that pond they've heard about keto flu. What would your thoughts be? I think what
1: we have seen anecdotally now, no studies have shown in terms of keto flu uh, on on this product, but anecdotally, uh, a lot of people who are dipping into ketogenic diet, they do find having exogenous ketones to be helpful because it puts your body in that ketotic uh, state earlier. And what studies have shown though, if you have exogenous ketones, you are upregulating hormones and enzymes related to ketone metabolism. So what does that mean? So that means that once you deplete the exogenous ketone in your body, you, you know, you metabolize it for energy, then you are leaving your body with the upregulation of these enzymes that could hopefully help you be more efficient in your own endogenous ketone production and metabolism. So definitely, you know, on top of that, have the water, have the electrolytes because we are losing the water from the glycogen, because glycogen holds a lot of water. And if you are going on a ketogenic diet initially, especially if you're adding fasting onto it, you're losing a lot of that glycogen stores. And as a result, you're losing all the water that glycogen is holding. And with that, also the electrolytes that is uh, dissolved in that water. So yeah, for sure, Have, have all those prerequisites, you know, taken care of, and then have this and, and, and take a look for yourself. And some people might find it useful. Some people might not as well. So listen to your body.
0: I think it's important just to, you know, to give context because I, know I was getting lots of questions, you know, does this mean that this will help bridge the gap? And I always remind people that keto flu or those feelings, which are generally related to loss of electrolytes are really meant to be temporary. It's not going to be forever, but I I find the people who are the most metabolically inflexible are the ones that will struggle the most Uh as I try to explain it. And you touched on, it was interesting. I was like, I had forgotten this because my pathophysiology days are many years behind me. You know, as you become keto adapted, the reduction in glycogen, it's like one gram of glycogen equals three grams of water. So it makes sense that if you're urinating a lot in a lower carbohydrate state, you understand you're urinating out your electrolytes. That's actually what's happening. And that's what mitigates those symptoms that you're experiencing in quote unquote, keto flu.
1: Yep. Absolutely.
0: What are your thoughts on fatty coffees?
1: Fatty coffees. I think they're fine if you're on ketogenic diet and depending on the quality of fat, like you've been saying, you know, like know the quality of the fat that you're taking in. And if you are struggling to get the fat calories in, so I tried a strict ketogenic diet when I first joined the company because I was I got to try it myself so that I can talk to my customers and I can talk to people who relate to, to the company and the product. And I found myself struggling to keep up with the calories because I'm replacing the calories from carbs with fats. Now, because fat has twice the amount of calories, my brain is not computing how much fat do I actually need now. And because I'm still lifting weights in the gym, I can feel the fatigue kicking and I can feel that I'm just more tired than when I was on, you know, normal diet. So I had to tweak it around a little bit as well to include a little bit more carbs, uh, but still on a low carb diet in order for me to be productive at the gym.
0: That makes sense. And I, I think, I guess my concern about fatty coffees is always coming from the perspective of, we know that, you know, the macronutrient fat overall is like nine calories per gram. And I remind people that you have to be kind of conscientious. Like you can't have half a stick of butter and, you know, five tablespoons of cream and, you know, adding all the fats and thinking like at some point, if you're trying to lose weight or change body composition that you could unknowingly, yes, it's relatively healthy, but unknowingly you could be putting yourself in a surplus and not a deficit and i know before we started recording you were talking a little bit about your background and and how you you know kind of came to a, a healthier lifestyle do you mind touching on some of this cuz i think this kind of pain to purpose it kind of keeps allows for pay, for patients people that are listeners to feel like they really are understanding who i'm connecting with today
1: yeah so well first of all i'm so so happy that you mentioned in terms of the calorie surplus and calorie deficit thing because a lot of people they feel like oh i'm on x and y diet i should see results but they fail to realize that they're consuming more than they had before or they're consuming more than they can burn off and therefore it still comes back as storage whether it's glycogen storage or fat storage so that's a very important point yes you know choosing the right macronutrient is important but having the right amount is also as important so in terms of what i've gone through of my health journey you know I'm not proud of it but i used to be a smoker for seven years. And during that time as well, I was overweight. I was drinking a lot of soda. I was not eating healthy and definitely consuming a lot of carbs. And until I was in my second year in my undergrad in the UK, I was 22 years old and I've actually uh, started running. But the whole story of me starting running, it was quite funny because my housemate asked me to go run with her but she was a state swimming captain back in Malaysia. So she could run. And I was this old <laughs> smoker and I was, I almost went blue. I couldn't breathe and she was panicking. She was like, do I need to call 911? Do I need to call the, the ambulance? I was like, no, I'm fine. And because of, I think part of it is, is also my pride where I had a couple they must be in their seventies and they were running faster than me. And they were cheering me on, you know, as a 22 year old, I was like, this cannot be happening at the age of 22. <laughs> I was embarrassed. I was very, very terrified. And because of that, I started running every day. I didn't realize in my head, I didn't run to lose weight. I didn't run to get fitter. I just wanted to be able to run. So it was as simple as that. And I, I ran, a, a, there's a university park in in Nottingham and I ran around the park. It's around two kilometers And I aim further every day. And then before I knew it, I lost about 45 pounds in four months. But at that point, because I lost so much weight so quickly, I almost look ill. That was when I started joining the gym and starting to learn about um, resistance exercise. And that was my entire final year. And my final year thesis for my undergrad was adipose tissue metabolism and a mathematical model of adipose tissue, which is fat metabolism. And then I went on to do my master's in biotechnology. And that was when I incorporate the knowledge of resistance exercise. That was when sarcopenia came in. So I was doing a lot of endurance. I was afraid of getting bigger as I lift weights because in my mind, I'm getting bigger because I'm getting fat again. I'm going back to where I was. I don't want to go there. I start restricting my diet. I start doing a lot of cardio. And then I learn about the balance between resistance exercise, endurance exercise, metabolic flexibility. And then I do my PhD in you know, metabolism of type two diabetic heart, because my family side, my mom's side has really high prevalence of diabetes. My sister, she had gestational diabetes, which I told her, you know, you got to be careful because you've got gestational diabetes, you got 50% higher risk of developing diabetes later on in life. You got to be careful with what you eat and how you you know live and exercise and all that. And my father's side, my late father died of stroke and my half-brother died of cardiovascular disease. So they have a high prevalence of cardiovascular disease. So it was not fully planned, but it sort of happened that I ended up doing a PhD combining both diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And now I'm like, great, I've got, you know, deposition of, of these two genes on both my family side. So it's great to know the knowledge that I need in order to prevent that, or to, in order to live as healthy as possible for the as long as possible.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I'm sure there are many people listening that have gone through weight loss resistance and then they get to a point where they do lose the weight and then they get triggered as they're lifting weight and muscle weighs more than fat. And so they start sometimes second guessing the process. I would say, trust the process. You know, I would say non-scale victories, et cetera. That's why taking measurements are so important, but thank you for sharing that because I, I, I thought that discussion that we started having at the beginning, I was like, this is really good because people can really relate to that. And I'm so grateful that the things you have learned, and and obviously through your family, and and you can you know counsel the rest of your family members about how they can help avoid developing cardiovascular disease or issues related to insulin resistance. So, let's bring this back full circle. So, you mentioned at the beginning that HVMN is doing some pretty incredible research with the military. Are you able to talk about any of the current research that's going on in a way that you know you're not compromising what you're doing?
1: Yeah, yeah, I can talk briefly about it. We are you know, using exogenous ketones and look at cognitive and physical function in hypoxia. So this is especially relevant for operators, for military operators who are on long and demanding missions, especially at high altitude. So altitude sickness and the loss of cognitive ability, if you would, when you are in hypoxia, because at like say 20,000 feet, which is what we stim- simulated, You get a significant drop of oxygen saturation in your blood. It goes down from at sea level about ninety-seven to one hundred percent to sixty to seventy-five percent. Now, with exogenous ketones, what we saw was amazing because we saw an increase of seven point seven percent of oxygen saturation. So that means like you are getting that much more oxygen when you're on ketones, and that is helping you um, think properly because oxygen in the brain is super important for you to get accuracy or for you to get response reaction time and do make the right response given the right stimulus. So that's what we did. We did all these cognitive tests and we asked them to exercise beforehand in hypoxia, fatigue them, and then ask them to do a shoot simulator and all these different cognitive tests. And they saw an improvement in reaction time. They saw improvement in accuracy. And that is huge because if you're out, you know, in the field operation and all those split decision making would make all the difference. And, you know, obviously they are very physically demanding as well. Um, having that clear mind and that focus to make the right decision at the right time, I think it's, it's very vital. And besides, it was DARPA from the Department of Defense that funded the whole research of exogenous to begin with about 20 years ago. So they were looking for a super fuel or they're looking for a fuel that can essentially support these operators at long and demanding missions. And then from then on, it sort of evolved and we have more data around performance and then we have more data on flavors, as I was talking earlier. We have more data about around scalability, around affordability, because, you know, we also want to bring this to the general public. It's not, if it's good for top athletes, if it's good for top military personnel, it should be good for the rest of the population because we're all humans. We're all metabolizing all the time. We are all creating ketones. If we want to, we all have the same enzymes, same hormones, same regulation. Some have higher, some have lower, but we are all able to metabolize ketones. So We want to make it affordable enough so that people can take it on a daily basis.
0: Well, I love this. And it's interesting. I just watched a documentary and I believe it was a gentleman from Bhutan, but he went to all of the highest peaks in the world. And one of the things he talked about was the issues with hypoxia at higher elevations that because of where he grew up and because he had been climbing from the time he was able to walk that he felt like his body was better adapted. But one of the things they talked about was these weekend warriors that want to go in and do, you know, extreme, you know, they're going to go hike the Himalayans as an example, and they're not really physically prepared to do it. And he said, I've seen a lot of people do crazy things when they're hypoxic because they're just not thinking clearly. And I can imagine if the U S military is involved, there's probably a lot of special ops, men and women that need these kinds of, of resources. So I love that, that, research is now translatable down to the general public. So it's not just for the special ops, although obviously it makes sense why they would need it, but for those of us that are in the lay public or in the medical community. So let listeners know how to connect with you, how to connect with HVMN for full disclosure. I'm very happily able to share that HVMN is a podcast sponsor. I do use the products. I've Got my husband who does jujitsu. I'm trying to get him to try it. I'm like, really try it before you go for a match and see how you do.
1: So one of the military guy that we worked with, he does jujitsu and he used it for the first time and he really loved it. He felt that after taking ketones, he could see, it's almost like everything is slower, So he could see things slower and he could move faster. It's the mind perception of movement and time, which is quite interesting because all this while we understand that ketone has been beneficial to endurance exercise. Cyclists, a lot of cyclists do it. We have supported more than 60% of the teams at Tour de France and they know of ketones, they know the benefits and they have been using it. But in terms of strength training or like high intensity training, I always say from a metabolism point of view, glycolysis, which is glucose metabolism will always be better because it creates fast energy for you. But nonetheless, the ketones actually provide the benefit, the cognitive benefit for that. So instead of, you know, using it for endurance exercise, I've been using it for heavy lifting because it puts me in the zone. It gives me really like sharp focus and gets me like, because I think a lot of listeners probably can relate like. When you are exercising, when you are pushing yourself uh, physically to the limit, yes, physical strength is important. Physical endurance is important, but as important is your mental strength. Will you give up? Will, are you, do you feel good about it? Are you in the zone to be motivated enough to go for the next set, to go for the next lap? I think that is super helpful with this product, at least from my personal point of view. And in terms of how to connect, our website is www.hvman.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at LATMANSOR, L-A-T-T-M-A-N-S-O-R. Yeah, I would love to speak to you know, more listeners, more audience, and just answer questions, like get the information, get the education out there. I would like to learn as much from you guys as much as you, know, you are learning from me.
0: Well, I love your enthusiasm and I like that you mentioned that another aspect that this can be beneficial for is, is the mental focus. And I tell everyone mindset is everything, and this is certainly no exception, but I've loved our conversation. I'll have to have you come back again. Um, you can it. clearly tell how enthusiastic you are about this topic and making the science translatable because one of the things that I have found as a clinician and also someone who has this pretty solid science background that sometimes researchers or scientists can be absolutely brilliant, but they struggle to communicate in a way that makes the information relatable. And so obviously you've been able to bridge both those things. So it's really a pleasure to interact with you. We'll have to do this again.
1: I would love to. It's it's my pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Yeah. It's really important. And I always tell people who are doing their undergrad or masters or, you know, in science field in general, the journey that I have been on is that going from explaining things simply in undergrad to explaining things in a very sophisticated manner in masters. And then in my PhD, I got told that I used too many fancy words. People don't understand. Now you need to understand, you need to explain this complicated concept in the simplest way so that you can then translate it to people who are not in your area of research. So that is definitely a journey that I enjoyed and a skill that I definitely make use of now because that is what I saw the lack of in the world right now where you have the general public, you have the industry, you have the scientists. You get a sort of triangle there and there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of broken communication channels. If you don't go out there and Google it and search it, you won't know. So how do we get that information out there and people are interested enough to listen and people can understand and relate. And I think there's a lot to do with, and I love how you structure your podcast because you always bring it back to relatability, the relevance, how is it, where is the so what to the audience? And I think that for me is key.
0: Thank you. That's a huge compliment. I I do endeavor. I always say there are some podcasts that are out there that demonstrate how smart the host is. And to me, I would much rather bring on the experts and try to make sure that everything is accessible so that we kind of bring it back to relevancy because then people can take action. They yeah, don't have to go down, you know, I'm old enough to say that the, the, we we used to use the sources, you know, back in the day before we had all this online accessibility to information. It's like I don't want someone to have to spend two days on a concept that we've brought up in a discussion. I want them to be able to take action from here.
1: I agree. hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend.